Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organisation, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smilian Jankovic, and Valda Glenn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome to our April edition of the Building Your Business podcast presented by Archer Gallen Redshaw Chartered Accountants. In today's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Ian Bloomingdale, partner at Clayton Newts, alongside Ian Walker, AGR Executive Chairman. Welcome, Ian. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Ian as well, welcome. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> In the discussion today, uh, we'll be focusing on Ian's journey to partnership and a career with one of Australia's leading law firms in Clayton Oots. Um, speaking about his career, we'd be keen to discuss um, his practice responsibilities within one of the, the big six firms in Australia, and also his focus on bringing through the next generation of lawyers and professional services leaders within the profession. Throughout today's episode as well, we'll get his unique insights into the requirements for practitioners to build their individual practice groups, um, also the evolution of the legal profession with the rise of uh, access to information and, um, and digital components, and then also highlighting um, the profession's balance between the need for technical experts, um, but also those with a client-focused approach as well. So uh, together, um, each of us will be highlighting alongside that the metrics of professional services firms and the potential frameworks that partners of professional services firms should have in place for now and into the future as well. So Ian, thanks again for, for joining us. You're welcome, Chris. Yeah. As some background, Ian is a leading commercial litigator with Clayton Newt, specialising in dispute resolution. One of Australia's leading litigation practitioner, practitioners, sorry, Ian has over 30 years experience in managing dispute resolutions across government, private clients and listed organisations with a focus on joint ventures, defamation and IP areas. A trusted advisor and a leading industry specialist, Ian has been a past recipient of various Best Lawyers and the Doyle's Guide accreditations, is a member of the Law Council of Australia, the International Law Association, and has also been appointed in 2022 as as the honorary consul for Denmark with the Royal Danish Consulate. So a very impressive background there, Ian. Makes life interesting. So I just want to sort of bridge, I guess, uh, our discussion points to, to begin with and, and of course get uh, your insights, um, Ian, as well on, I guess, um, some various things. But we'll, we'll jump into um, Ian Bloomingdale's journey, first of all, um, especially, you know, with the, with the big six law firm and, and Clayton Oots and, and obviously that partnership discussion that, that came along and, um, and your industry recognition as well. well. I guess I was lucky in one sense. I mean... Um I landed on my feet in a, in a, in a good firm. I mean, I, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer since I was 12. It's curious. I remember telling my English teacher when I was 13 that she's going around the class and what are you going to be? I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. She said, oh, you can change your mind. Everyone does. And I said, you want to take a bet? I always wanted to know I wanted to do disputes. So I grew up originally in Fiji. Parents moved to Auckland, did the law degree in Auckland. I came, flew to Australia about 88, just around Expo, 89. So after that, had a job interview. 
at the firm that I'm now at, and they offered me a job as an article clerk. I said, what's that? How much does it pay? They told me what it was and how much it paid, and then they told me it was in the banking and finance team, and I said, no to all three. <laughs> I wasn't. No, thank you. Um, I had a job offer in Auckland at a, at a leading firm there, um, paying 10 grand more at that time, which was probably a third more than what was being offered in Brisbane. Mm. So they said, well, we can't guarantee your job if you go away. So I'll go, well, go do a master's degree, I'll come back next year as a, an admitted lawyer and I'll take my chances. At that point, uh, I had seen a, a legal consultant They'd lined up interviews through in Brisbane for a day and then I had interviews on the Gold Coast. At the end of the day, I said to the uh, recruitment guy, I said, cancel all the uh, appointments in the Gold Coast because I found the firm that I want to work for, which is the one who offered me the job as this article clerk in banking finance. And it was because I walked into the place and I liked the culture of the firm. I mean, it just differentiated itself from the other offices I went to somewhere. No, you just didn't feel at home, um, somewhere a bit more precious or they gave the impression of being more precious or just a variety of things so I picked the firm that I wanted to go and then when they offered me the job and I said no I couldn't believe that I said no to the firm that I wanted to work for but it wasn't in the area I wanted to work in yep. I'd just gotten married and I couldn't afford to live on what they were going to pay me so <laughs> so I returned to Auckland um, started my master's degree as a master's by thesis and then I came back at the end of the year I got an offer uh, at an interview with the same firm in the litigation team uh, and the partner then who's now a consultant said, don't give me your decision now. I was going to Harvard to do some research for my master's and he said, call me from Harvard. I thought, what it sounds like? Oh, he said, but you're going to have to give an undertaking you'll stay for two years. I said, yeah, sure. firm in Perth who wanted me to join them required me to give them an undertaking to stay for five years and I thought two was a doddle. Mm. And I was going to stay anyway. So we did that. And that's how I ended up at a firm which was then called Henderson Trout, which then merged with Clayton Utes. So I think picking a firm where you feel at home that is a good fit for you is the first start. And then a firm that is a quality firm, which can you can build a career in, is, is the second. So like I say, I was fortunate to land on my feet in a, in a, in a good firm. So then you go on that journey with uh, with them and eventually the discussion comes around to, to partnership after going through the, the various levels. Um, wh- you know, what's, uh, what was that discussion like and, and being able to be brought into that, that ownership's sake? Um, I think I was at a crossroads at that point. I'd been a lawyer in the firm for 10 years, I'd moved through, become a senior associate. We didn't have special counsel levels then. so And I was doing a business case to go to the bar to be a barrister. I had it all ready to go. Another one of my friends was, was going as well. We we're going to look at going to the same chambers. And I think my partner might have found out about that. That might have helped um, accelerate the decision to offer partnership. Um, I'm guessing. But uh, it's something I was interested in. So I, took, I decided, well, I'll suck and see. If I really like being a partner in this firm, I'll stay. If I don't, well, I'll go to the bar mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and that was 23 years ago. So, yeah, it was, uh, you had to go through, they had a policy committee in Brisbane, you had to get past the policy committee. Uh, and then it was the first year that Clayton Utes had merged really fully with Henderson Trout as a national firm. And so I then had to go to the board, the national board, and be interviewed by the national board as well, um, and get through that hurdle. 
and then being appointed a partner. Wow. Is it still the same process today? To a large extent, yeah. I mean, you've got to get through your your local practice group. They've got to put you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, um, then there's an invigilation committee, if I can call it that, who mm-hmm. test the business case. It's it's very much more much more business case focused and needs focused. Uh, once it gets through that, and there's recommendations that then go to the board, uh, and then the board makes a decision as to whether or not they accept any proposals. Mm-hmm. So it's probably um, about a six to nine month process. Excellent. And there's a lot of partners now. How many partners at Clayton now? Well, I never looked over my shoulder to count, but um, <laughs> it's probably, I had a best guess, I'd go somewhere between 180 to 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not everyone gets to that. No, but not everybody wants to be either. Um, We've got your lawyers through different grades. You have senior associates. And then there's sort of two categories, if you like, of special counsel. Career special counsel who don't want to be partner, (laughs) but they're really good specialists Mm -hmm. and you want to keep them. And then there's, there's those who want to go on a partnership path. And so there's a sort of bifurcation between those two at that special council level. So if you want to move forward, you put yourself on a path where you are building and showing that business case mm-hmm. and you'll be moved forward. Yeah. But, you don't, but you don't have to. As a young person coming in there, there's plenty of avenues for yeah. them to get to where they wish to go and change their mind or... The lawyers of today, are, I think, younger lawyers of today are very different from my generation. I mean, people tend to change between jobs more. They look for more experience, look for different areas. They might spend a couple of years with COVID that going overseas part had that hiatus, but I think that will come back even more. And then they might go in-house more. And they'll look for more flexibility in their workplace. And if firms don't offer that flexibility, I think they'll look to other parts of, you know, other vocations which they can use their law degree to have that. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. But, and just touching on that, and I'm sure we'll talk about the next generation of, of lawyers coming through and, and how we help with leadership around that. But from quite a young age, you wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You turned up at a firm and have stayed there for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, are you now, and I suppose you have touched on it, is that an exception to the rule these days? Is it? Is it... Like you said, and in, in even from an employer perspective yourself, are you saying, no, it's really great that a lawyer coming to us now has eight different jobs and different specialties and some have been overseas and some haven't, versus that individual that is motivated and backs themselves to come from university or post-grad and go, yep, I now want to work here and get to the top over a certain period of time? I think, well, I mean, we look for talent. Mm. And whether the talent has had experience elsewhere or straight from university, I don't think that matters as much. If you had somebody who's chopped and changed, it makes you question, I think, yep. whether they are a stayer or not. If they don't have that ability to show commitment, because you, what you are is you're asking for commitment. Yes. So that's that's important. And I've probably got a slightly different approach because I, the firm I've been on, I've got people who I have worked with continuously for 33 years. Mm-hmm. And we've got a, a, quite a a long list of people who have been working that long in my team, on my floor, together, and they're not all partners. Mm -hmm. It's special counsel who've been with me that long. Um, Secretaries who... We just had a secretary who finished, uh, celebrated her 40th year. 
but other secretaries, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Well, I guess we're blessed in that respect. So there's that level of stability which then helps you build. Yeah. You know who yeah. you've got. Uh, you're not having to worry about are they dependable or not. They've shown themselves dependable. Yeah, and you can build a good team structure mm. around those, a good spine for a footy. Yeah, but if, we see, but if we see a talent, you know, someone out there yeah. and they're, you know, they may be available and we might be able to fit them into the practice yeah. and they're, they're talented, then we'll look to do that too. In being a partner, it now focuses to you for, for leadership and, and obviously bringing in the um, bringing in the team and, and building that purpose. What's your approach to that from um, sort of multiple areas? One from a, a people management perspective, a second from a business, and then a third from an entire practice group perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, I see the first thing is when you're a partner in a litigation team, mm-hmm. in my firm at least, it doesn't mean you leave the tools. Seventy mm-hmm. percent of my day is still as a technical specialist on the tools, giving strategy, working on matters, and then you know thirty percent of your day it'll flex, but you know is dealing with client issues, uh, mentoring, what you call leadership issues, and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's being malleable, and then yeah, business development, obviously, mm-hmm. yep. as well. Yep. Um, and so that might mean that. You're spending 12, 13 hours a day doing seven hours of work. If you're owning in a business, it doesn't matter whether it's a small business or a large business. That's your commitment to build and grow the business. But we have a team. We try and develop a culture where, you know, there's financial targets. Everyone has financial targets, obviously. Okay. Um, there's performance targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got pro bono targets. Mm-hmm. Knowledge management targets. As well. Okay. So, uh, it's trying to build a much more holistic team rather than just saying you've got to be responsible for so many billables mm-hmm. and our pro bono work every lawyer in the firm has to aim to do 40 hours of pro bono a year and those 40 hours are treated as if they're chargeable so it's not like if you do it you're then penalised Yep. so um, yeah we've done well over half a million pro bono hours yep okay wow since we've been doing it and that's embraced by everyone, um, no doubt, as part yeah. of. And everyone it's knows up front when they come in. That's that's it, what they've got to do, and they it's look part of the culture. We actually look you to look to do it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 not doing. It's not regarded as doing lesser work than full billable work. Yeah, it's um it's part of doing the work. Yeah, yeah, and so it's not um it's not a tag on. Mm. It's real. Yeah, so it's, I think that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, obviously, the, yeah. You still have to actively engage with, with your clients as well and um, manage a relationship and, and all that. And just on that relationship, Ian, because I, I know sometimes, and, and some professional service firms are all different, but lawyers sometimes are seen as more transactional mm-hmm. than, say, an accounting firm, which has a, a certain percentage of compliance work. So you, you get to see the client month in, quarterly in, you know, year in, year out. But from a lawyer's perspective and, and for the other professional services listeners that are that are following this podcast, how do you build that and sustain that relationship on a more transactional style of a business? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, especially in litigation. Yeah. Well, I sort of sometimes you feel like you're an, um, you're an oral, oral surgeon where, you only want to see that person once, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and, and then you hope you never have that pain again and you don't have to see them and, and, and litigation is a little bit like that. So when you go to see somebody, you want to see somebody who you trust and who can plan around what you need and who can think ahead so that if you ever have or know somebody else who has mm-hmm. that problem, yep. they'll think the person you need to see is this. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like a doctor in a sense. Mm-hmm. You want to trust your doctor. You want to have a reputation for being trustworthy, for knowing your craft, for delivering a safe outcome. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you need to give somebody a diagnosis, which they might not like, Mm -hmm. you have to be able to deliver that diagnosis. And it's always better to do that early. Mm -hmm. Not every case is winnable, but you don't want to have somebody spend a lot of money to find that out. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to identify that early and then people will know that you're actually interested in them not just interested in having a job. And I, that's my view. I think with my clients, I like to say, well, I like to think I say, if I form a view that you, it's not in your interests, I'll tell you. If you instruct me otherwise, that's up to you. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've probably lost jobs because I've told clients that this is what it looks like, this is where it's going, and this is how much it will cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they've had somebody else say, I mean, I'll just we'll win it, don't worry about that, and I'll do it for half the price and yep. don't know what the entail of that is, but I can guess mm-hmm. sometimes. Yep. From a marketing perspective or a develop, business development perspective, past client referrals are actually then quite high and, and, and important within your business model? Y- yes, and no, we have inst- there's institutional clients, yep. um, so like, like government clients, corporate mm-hmm. clients, um, and there'll be cross-relationship cross cross referrals as well within the law. So if I have a client come to me, because you might have developed the sort of most trusted advisor type of role, mm. yep. you know, if, if, if their parent died, they'd probably call you and say, well, they know that estate planning is not your yep. role, but they know that you can put them in touch with the right person. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's the same thing there where people come to you and then you'll refer them to the right person to deal with the issue. That's That's really... An important feature. Mm-hmm. So we'll have those repeat clients, I suppose, in that sense within those relationships. Um, do we get a lot of referrals? Yes, we do. I mean, I've had, and I'll get the referrals from the bar as well. Yep. Because they say, well, actually, the team you need to look after your matter are these people. We've seen the way we've seen lots of lawyers send us briefs, but these people know how to put it together, and they always do well with cases so Mm -hmm. see that team yep um, that happens that's important and does that fall all on you or you try to bring through other members of your team to help with those business development as well i know that your team members are crucial i mean i've got team members where i've had clients say to me gee i hadn't been introduced to that member of your team but boy they were good Mm -hmm. they were great yeah give them my Encouragement. Tell them that. Give them that feedback. You know, yep. And I've had that actually uh, repeatedly with with different members of the team. Excellent. And then you give them that feedback, and then that builds them up, and then you tell them why that was good feedback and, and what actually led to that, and they can understand it. Yeah. No good. And and therefore, yeah. On top of that, then you've got a lot of office politics and keeping all your other partners happy, so they refer to you as well. There's there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um. You know, the hard, the hard part in professional services, if it's a catch-what, uh, uh, eat-what-you-kill approach, yeah. 
that can lead to perhaps not the best behaviours. Um, so it's really important to instil collaboration mm-hmm. in a professional service firm yep. and reward collaboration as well because um, people behave according to whatever financial model you have. Correct, yeah. Uh, from what I, that's my belief. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the structure can, um, can affect behaviours mm-hmm. um, and the way that you deal with uh, people behaving poorly. You have to, you can't walk past it and let it go. Mm-hmm. Yep. But for the most part, I mean, like I say, in Brisbane, I've been blessed with working together with a great bunch of people. Uh, you have known quantities. Yeah, everyone's sort of about to, you know, advance their careers and advance their work, but at the same time we work together. Yeah. Um, Just a further question that I have on that. In terms of, you mentioned there that, Um, those business development and those additional components are set out from the very beginning, you know, when they come to to the firm. Often those additional components are new to to lawyers. You know, they obviously are focused on their technical expertise and and building that out. How do you create buy-in on the business development um, components and and also these additional measurements as well? Is it solely through, you know, the financial measures or is there other ways and and the encouragement that you give or is there other ways as well? No, I mean, there's... When, when they come in, they go through an orientation. Junior lawyers come in, mm-hmm. there's an orientation program. Business development is part of that orientation program. Yep. Um, you're then put into teams. Uh, my team, for example, we have a weekly meeting just amongst the, the team and the PAs. Uh, we have a monthly meeting with the senior lawyers. Mm-hmm. And then we'll look to have a quarterly meeting with the entire floor. But at those weekly meetings, we will be talking about what BD activity is, is happening who's presenting, who's writing articles, so forth. Um, at the monthly meeting, we'll be checking in on the same things and then encouraging the senior lawyers beneath the partners to involve the junior lawyers to do that um, and then identify you know, what's coming up and then talk about opportunities as well, both with clients and with the bar. Mm-hmm. We have lawyer excellence programs okay. yep. as well. So uh, lawyers at... at pre-senior associate level, there's a lawyer excellence program where it's, you know, a two or three day intensive where for their level they get taught leadership issues, um, uh, working within the business and, and BD. Then there's a senior associate business excellence program, special counsel business excellence program, and a partner excellence program as well. Right. Okay. So at all those levels there are... Excellence programs. I've also seen that we've got a national mentoring program as well, mm-hmm. where um, a lawyer will be matched with a senior practitioner outside of their team, even in a, maybe in another office. Yeah. Uh, and so you can have that one-on-one mentoring over a period of three six months. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a reverse mentoring program. I was mentored with a young lawyer in Sydney mm-hmm. um, to help me maybe see business from a different point of view, and 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 what challenges they see and what opportunities they see, which I might not see, yep. which I found quite quite interesting. Different ways of doing work yep. um, and so forth. So, yep. Then we've got a forum called Cultivate where we hook up our young lawyers with people their age, their peers amongst client organisations as well and we get them together yep. um, so they can network yep. at that level. Um, I think I'm doing a wine tasting coming up. Uh, for, for Cultivate. Um, 
sometime <laughs> soon. So. It's, a, it's a good name for wine, mate. Yeah. As long as you don't have to pick the grapes yeah. yourself, you'll be fine. Yeah, and then, we, and then we've got a we've got a BD team. Mm-hmm. Each office has got a business development team, and they will then also come alongside the lawyers. You can ask specifically for their assistance, or they will come alongside, and the partners will then ask them to also assist with business plans and career development plans. And so those um, those documents are called for as well. Yep. And you get partner input and the BD team input into helping you for your level, you know, draft a one-pager or a two-pager mm-hmm. just to get you started in thinking. Yeah. No, that's great. So with then the leadership part of it and, and with all these programs, et cetera, that you're talking about, I assume from it that, that the, the talent within your organisation, assuming leadership can be taught, there isn't that, is it born in someone and then those characteristics are there and, and we help mentor them out into a, to a greater role model. Or can you see from your experience, anyone that comes in, if they've got the motivation, they can be taught the leadership skills? Uh, I think most can. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, think, um, I think leadership, if you're a lawyer and you come into law firm, you, do not, you, you don't get taught business skills. Mm-hmm. They don't teach you that at university. They don't yeah. teach you leadership if you're fortunate enough to come into an environment where there is a good leader who's role modelling good leadership, you can learn that way. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that that's you're going to find there'll be that'll be an exceptional way to learn how to be a leader. Yep. Yeah. Um, so it's important to have leadership skills training, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, will everybody be a good leader if they get it? I don't think so. Um, I think there's personalities which are going to be hard to. Um, change at times mm-hmm. you know I'm a believer in building people's strengths up yep. and f- really focusing on that because that's where the real sweet spot is mm-hmm. and then if they've got weaknesses trying to help them overcome those but sometimes those weaknesses are hard to yeah. change yep. and if there are personality issues that affect leadership skills and styles and they don't change you can teach them as much as you like mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but those people normally don't progress either yeah um, and they choose their own path, yeah, because yep. they find it difficult to to fit, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in an organisation which requires you to behave in a particular way and treat people in a particular way and get results from doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Do you think then, for a professional services firm, you know, there, there's some that are five, ten people up to an organisation the size of yours, that the structure uh, and the numerous different offices and people within those offices uh, can be an advantage and disadvantage to individuals yeah, on uh, their progression up through and impacting their own leadership styles? Yeah, I think it can help. Um, because, I mean, I've seen people who've come into our team, for example, and they haven't quite fit and, and or they haven't had the right person to work under, but you move them into another team in a different area and they flourish. Yeah. And so you can't just write them off. You have to give them that opportunity to, to flourish mm-hmm. and, uh, and find the right environment sometimes. So having a good mentor is one thing. Having mm-hmm. an environment that suits the type of personality you have as well is important. Um, and then your skills and bringing those together is important. Yeah. Now that's great. And that probably touches on my next question around the different styles for different people and different teams. So... I suppose when you talk about your floor and, and mm-hmm. 
your office is based in Riparian, so they're not they're not small plates. There's there's quite a few on the floor per floor. Mm. How does I sh- and I'm assuming in some cases not all one area service area of Clayton Utes is on the same individual floors either. So yeah, we're, how we're, do you we're fortunate on our floor? Yeah, we've got pretty, it's pretty much litigation. Yeah, so we've got one of the largest litigation teams in the state. So we're. Yeah. Our, our floors then that'll, that'll include insurance litigation, recovery and insolvency litigation, and pure commercial litigation. Okay. Yep. And so while we might have two business units, we operate as one team. Yeah. And we'll swap personnel across those teams. Mm-hmm. So just because somebody reports to me doesn't mean they can't work for you. Yeah. Um, and they might be better working for you on a particular job. I've got a person who reports to me who. Uh, had real had some capacity um, at that point in time. I had other people working my jobs, um, so one of my other partners said, "Hey, I can use them." And yep. he's in the insolvency team, but he's got a large piece of commercial litigation as well. And I said, "You should tap them on the shoulder and and use them." And they are so yeah. that flexibility is important and, and works well. But there, yeah, there's other floors where there are different teams. Mm. So the government services team, the property team, or the corporate team, or the real estate team. Um, They'll be on different floors and they might have a few different groups. Yeah. They might not have people moving between those groups as, yeah. as much. Um, but the personalities and the style across that floor needs to be, I suppose, incorporated as one, which means the cultural training, the um, interaction between staff members and the respect amongst all of them is, is, is required. Yeah, and I think we sort of tend to have a little bit of an office culture as well, which yeah. sort of covers that. Mm-hmm. Different groups will have their own different way of doing things mm-hmm. and their own microculture. Mm-hmm. As long as that microculture fits within the firm, the office culture. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a different office culture between Sydney there's, uh, compared to Brisbane, compared to Melbourne. But it yeah, needs, needs to work. It does. Well, I'm glad you mentioned, I guess, the uh, the mentoring programs because I think that comes into the next discussion point around bringing that next generation of um, lawyers through. You spoke there about um, obviously having one of those particular mentoring sessions and, and speaking specifically about the, the biggest opportunities and challenges um, and that the difference is there. So um, what do you see as those being for early career and mid-career lawyers facing at the moment in building their career? I mean, I think there's, I think there's great opportunities. I, I look back and I remember, showing my age now, but I remember that we'd be... Friday afternoons, you'd have law firms, when you do engage in litigation, people on the other side would switch their fax machines off at 4.30 so you couldn't serve them by facsimile, right? You know, I've had older lawyers tell me about different types of technology, but then you then had email hit mm-hmm. and then everything speed, speeds up, you know? Before yep. you had faxes, you had to wait for letters. You'd have time to think. You'd have time to reflect on your advice. You'd have time between when you sent it out and when it came back. Same with writing. You would send something off to a dictation pool and wait for it to come back and then you'd edit it now it's all sped up it's people using voice dictation or mm. typing on the screen and that sort of type and dispatch the time for reflection and checking disappears mm. and then the demands of time from clients requiring things everyone imagines that you are at your desk doing nothing else just waiting for that call or that email yeah. and yep. as soon as they send that email they're expecting you to respond and yep. you know five minutes later if you haven't they're asking why so that's that's the the challenge dealing with time mm-hmm. and pressure and having time to just slow down, still think about the work, think about the quality of the work, mm. don't respond to people 
pushing you, especially if they're on the other side. Give hot emails the pillow test. You know? <laughs> yep. Um, don't send them straight away. So technology is both the blessing and the curse for the modern young lawyer mm-hmm. because it adds to the pressure. Um, and these are people who are asking for more balance. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then dealing with that pressure, unless you make a decision that this is how I'm going to deal with it, and you've got the support to say quality comes first, you know. It's like somebody said to me once, you can have quality, price, or timeliness. Okay, you can have two of those three, but never three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's a bit like that. But just telling them you can take the time to get it right mm-hmm. um, and sort of back off. So, yeah, then being part of a team, I think, uh, because we have this shift towards a hybrid environment, you know, post-COVID is people who still want to have that flexibility, work from home. I had a conference call this morning on, on teams and suddenly one of my team members disappeared, came back on because they'd changed out of their T-shirt and put on a you know button shirt because it was the first time they'd been meeting this person, that type of thing. And so that can impact building relationships with your peers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it can impact um, service delivery, I think, as well, um, and client service expectations. So if you're going to have a hybrid environment, I still think it's really important to have people in the office where it's easier to have exchanges. You know, a facial expression can sometimes say a lot more than you yeah. know, a page. Yep. Um, uh, and if you've got people emailing each other, sometimes people can misread tone. Yes. Um, so face-to-face is still very important. And whilst you can do face-to-face over Teams, um, it's still not the same as being in front of somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I employed one person once over Teams and I'd never do it again. Yeah. Not unless I had to, but... Yeah. So, yeah. So and I suppose yeah. with all the programs too that, that your firm runs, it's pretty difficult to do the, all that over Teams. Oh, no, you can't. No. Yeah. Uh, you got to... It's a relationship business. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is to build and maintain the relationships. Yeah. And... The relation I was say to my staff, your job is to make your client look good. Right? I'm your client. Mm. My team members, I'm your client. My client is the client. The client. Yeah. Yeah. So it works all the way up. Mm-hmm. You can't do that unless you're building that relationship within the team and then the team then know the client as well mm-hmm. and the client knows them. And then there's that trust that's that's built. So I think building dependability, responsiveness, you know, being front of mind. If you're, if you're in a shadow at home coming on a Teams call every now and then, are you going to be front of mind? Mm. You know, if you want to build a career, you've got to be the person people think of first. Mm-hmm. If you want to build a business, you want to be the service provider that people think of first or maybe second or third. You've got to be on the list. Yep. If you're not on the list, you don't have a chance. I mean, years ago, I had one of the cases we had. We acted for Sandline when they went into P&G. And an English lawyer called up on a Saturday morning. And I understand that we we got the job, but we may have been the third person that he called on the Saturday morning. And the partner I worked for had his phone diverted to his mobile. The first two firms didn't. Mm -hmm. So we were on the list. (laughs) We may have been the second or third choice. Um, for the, in order of calls, but because we were available, we got it. You might have heard the three A's, you know. So, so I sort of think clients 
I could be wrong, but somebody told me this and I've just held on to it. There's three A's for getting work. Um, affability, ability and availability. And you've got to have all three all at once. Mm-hmm. So if they, they've got to like you, mm-hmm. you have to have the ability and you've got to be available. If they like you and you've got the ability but you're not available, you don't get it. I'll have the last one. Mm-hmm. Yep. If they like you and you're available but you're not able... You don't get it. Mm. If you're able and you're available but they don't like you, you don't get it. Yep. So building that into the the team as well mm-hmm. is, is important. Yeah. And I suppose just touching on your uh, example with the partner being available, do the young lawyers have that? I, I know from a sense of some of my medical um, clients that the young ones coming through aren't as available as mm-hmm. as you know, the Gen Xs and, and older. Are you seeing that in the law or they have, you know, they're, been they're, accustomed they're, yeah. to now being available? Do you, you know, because there are court cases involved in some of your work that you just have to be available. Is it, mm-hmm. is it more a function of your professional services than it is a decision by everyone to make themselves 24-7? Probably a bit of both. I mean, there are those who willingly make themselves available because they're hungry to, to do the work. Yeah. And they want to be involved in the best cases. They, you know, if you, unless you have this sort of, you have to have some ambition. Mm-hmm. You have to have a bit of hunger and drive to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you've got that, then you're prepared to actually put in. You still have to have balance. I, I recognise that. I mean, the worst time I had in terms of lack of balance was during the Royal Commission. Mm-hmm. Again, fly down to Sydney, went there to do something for a week. I never got home for a month. Yeah, you know. And then you were there, and you worked every night till anywhere between 1am and 3am and the back of the desk at 7.30, rinse and repeat, mm. through to Saturday afternoon, evening, when you put the material, so Friday night when you had to hand in the material and you got another job on the Saturday, Friday night or Saturday morning, mm-hmm. and you just had Sunday afternoon off. Like that, was, that was it. That was probably the worst example I've seen on that and that was workplace health and safety alarm bells going off everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but beyond that... It's, you don't have to work that hard every weekend, mm-hmm. right? but sometimes you need to be available and mm-hmm. put your hand up. And you're looking for people to do that. If those who don't, who say no, well, um, that's fine, but they might not reach their targets. Mm-hmm. They might not be seen as somebody who's collaborative. They may actually be better suited to work in. Um, maybe for a government client or something like that. It all depends because they may have needs that mean that that's yeah. difficult, right? Yeah. It's, so it's not a judgment against them. They may just be just a different horses for courses. But by and large, I tend to think of litigation as working in the emergency department of law. Mm. And if you've got to put in because you have to triage, then you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's interesting, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. So. So is there anything in particular that you're hoping to see from the, the next generation of professional, professional services leaders um, in the way that they're coming across but also their development of their career as well and their journey? What I want to see is what's come before. Mm-hmm. I want to see people continue to treat this as a profession, not as a job. Mm-hmm. You've seen that film Kingsman? Kingsman, he says, man as maketh man yes. or yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah that's um, a saying, I think, from the um, 14th century head of Eton College. And uh, that's where, where it comes from, an old proverb. But um, uh, sort of t- 
talks about, you know, politeness, good manners, civility is really important. And in a profession, acting as a professional, I think that's... There are professional standards. There are ethical standards. And if you fall short of those, you don't have a, a profession. It's... And so I think, it, but I think it has to go more than that. I think it's not just your outward behaviour. I think it there has to be the sort of deep-seated inner moral fibre that's important mm-hmm. in a profession. Um, otherwise, you might as well go off sell cars or do something else. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on yeah. car sales, but it's a it's yeah. a profession with a professional standard, professional ethics. Yes, yeah. and business is important. And running a business is important. I mean, the size of our business, you can't just say, well, I just want to be a professional and just be that and just do what I like without having an eye on business. But you can't do it at the expense of just running a business, being razor sharp as a business person and forgetting about professional standards and ethics and the way you treat other people. Mm -hmm. So for the future, that's my hope. I mean, the best, most enjoyable cases I've had are ones where the clients absolutely hated each other to death. And we had two, uh, you know, it was a merger acquisition fight, mm-hmm. takeovers, we had allegations of, you know, people breaching their agreements. And so we had two trials and two appeals inside of six months. And the only way we could do that is the two lawyers got together, myself and this partner and another firm, and we said, okay, we understand our clients hate each other. They really, really did. You couldn't get them in the same room. Mm-hmm. We said, well, how do we make this happen? And we just timetabled it, worked it out, and we treated each other professionally, civilly. Um, if that person said something to me, I wouldn't verbal them about it. Um, if something was said on the QT, quietly, whatever, you treat that with respect. Um, it was confidential. It was just for the lawyer type of thing. Um, and you have this professional relationship to make the dispute be managed. The judge would make the decision. We don't make the decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you would manage the process. And that was really rewarding. And that's only because the two partners were being very professional and they weren't chipping each other and sniping at each other and trying to you know, win points against mm. each other. When you see that happen, you mark that person. Mm-hmm. It's a small town. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then behaviours change. So, yeah, so I think being professional is really important. I mean, I think the next generation, I hope they're going to be, you know, they're all talented people. The talent pool keeps keeps rising, and um, mm-hmm. I think we just need to help them become very capable leaders, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and 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 people who can provide constructive feedback. I think that the feedback circles are growing as the generations come through, because we're learning that feedback's important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and then I suppose too, we've seen a lot of it. You know, since COVID and post COVID, the work the work-life balance, and you touched on it previously, is it something that's becoming more prevalent in the young lawyers coming through or it's just really not an issue and it's it's no. okay? Work-life balance? Mm, I yeah. think it is an issue. Yep. Yeah. I think um, what that means may be different for different people. Um, some people may have expectations of work-life balance means you don't have to achieve targets and that, I think they're sadly mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but... Uh, we try to be flexible and I mean, even, you know, from not only professionals but also with the, with the, the, the admin staff. And I've got a PA who works two days a week in the office one week and three days a week in the office the next. And then you know, the cycle at home is, is the opposite. Um, staff who will flex and work from home. 
which you can easily get them, but it's not every day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if people are meeting their targets, are you going to worry if they're coming in at 9 o'clock as opposed to 8 or 8.30 or they're... You know, I've got staff who leave at four because, or three because they've got to pick up kids and then and clock back on and that's fine. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was coming through, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Because yeah. the, comp- the only computer you had was the one on your desk. desk yep. And you had to be in the office in order to work on it. So there was no going home and logging on at home. Mm. It's, a, it's great that you can do that now. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can get to have dinner with your kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's to be encouraged. But has it encroached... In other ways, though, that technology where you are on 24-7 in some yes. instances and it yes. takes mm-hmm. strong will to, uh, you know, shut that door and say, you know, I've finished for the day. If you're a, it's harder as a partner, mm-hmm. I'll say that. Yeah. Because there's this responsiveness which is sought and demanded, especially even in a large firm where people say, well, I'm paying these rates. Mm-hmm. My expectations are greater. Some clients, but not all clients like that. Other clients understand that they want to treat you like they want to be treated. So mm. if I'm on holiday, I'll leave you alone. If you're, I won't call you after X o'clock at night or whatever. Yeah. Um, but as a partner, you're always looking to see what's happening. Is there, do you have a client who has a need? You know, Last night I was exchanging emails with a client till probably 10 o'clock at night because mm-hmm. uh, I was at my desk mm-hmm. at home till about 11, just doing some other stuff. But if you... No, otherwise. I try and keep my weekends clear. Mm-hmm. You know, I always try to work hard during the week and then leave the weekends for the family yep. as much as I can. But maybe now and then you've got to work half a day on a yep. Saturday or Sunday or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yep. No, that's good. I mean, I suppose the young the young people coming through every every different professional services firm has a different um, perception, I suppose, mm-hmm. of and what's needed, What's what is a response time. I mean, the, the harder part, I think, for the younger people is if the, the partner they work for has an expectation that they have to be available yes. to read their emails yeah, yeah, that's right. all hours. And I think that's where you don't want to put that pressure on people. But I don't have that expectation. Mm-hmm. If I send an email uh, you know, at night, I'm not expecting a response that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a reason we sent it. We, or you had to get it out of your own head and say, yeah. yep, that's, I'm going to send that. Maybe you've got a busy day the next day yeah, and so correct. you're trying to get ahead of the yeah, curve and exactly. you're, you're dealing with it. In following on to that as well, I wanted to jump back to building an individual practice group. You mentioned that um, a little bit earlier in the discussion as well and what your approach is to, to that um, in terms of you know, expanding the existing relationships. Obviously, you alluded there to different areas with regards to uh, different service lines cross um, cross promoting, I suppose, um, but also in terms of you know, reputation management and, and billables. How how you build that uh, business plan? I think you got to realise that you can't do everything. You know, you d- you need others, mm-hmm. so you need to have a strong relationship with other your other partners, both in your team and across different sectors so that you, you can cross-refer. Um, but then you have to, I think, understand that at the end of the day it's, it's, it's a relationship-driven business, so you need to show people that you actually understand their business. And we've got uh, client relationship partners for, for key clients, mm-hmm. and so you, you'll, if you want to meet a client, they might be the client relationship partner, you'll, you'll work with them to say, well, I'm not doing their work, well, the firm's not doing their work, there's an opportunity, I 
wouldn't mind talking to them about this. Mm-hmm. You sort of build a bridge um, that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, litigation's a bit of a broad church in the sense that, unlike, say, if I'm a property lawyer, I'm dealing with leases and transactions and property deals. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a litigator. I could have an energy and resources dispute in the morning, a financial services dispute midday, a defamation matter later in the afternoon, uh, could deal, in, deal with a manufacturing client or education sector or a publisher or an IT company. and So there are different sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, the skill set might be the same, but you still need to learn about those sectors yep. and show competency. But you can't then be everything to everybody either, so you have to specialise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we have, in our litigation team, we've got people who you know, have... I'll call it a spike of excellence, if you like, in dealing with insolvency disputes, a spike of excellence, dealing with IT disputes or defamation. And it might be that one partner, I'll use myself as an example, might have two or three or four different spikes of excellence. Mm -hmm. So if if there's any question, even in the firm, on legal professional privilege, I'll get the phone call and say, this is a difficult question we've got about that. Can you do it? Mm -hmm. If there's IT litigation... I'll get the call from the other partners in the other teams or defamation, mm-hmm. probably be me. And energy and resources disputes, there are a few of us who have done a number of energy and resources matters. Um, financial services, probably a couple of us who have much more expertise with that. Mm-hmm. Um, class actions, well, probably one of the first class actions in Queensland, so mm-hmm. well, defended, not ran it. I was acting for the defendants there, but... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there'll be so depending on the nature of the thing, there'll be different people with different spikes. So you'll identify those people, and so for yourself and for your team, you want to build those spikes. You know, encourage your team to develop spikes of excellence, mm-hmm. where they become a go-to person for a different area and develop some specialisation. If you if you're a generalist all the time, I think you'll suffer in the modern practice. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's then using those skills. And applying them and and helping the client do their best. So then, how do you manage workflow? Then, well, and, and workflow is a loose term, but I suppose resourcing inside a team mm-hmm. where you know you've got some learners coming through, for want of a better phrase, some some younger lawyers, and then you've got those that have had more experience, and then those that have been around a long time and are two IC or three IC mm-hmm. or, or right hand person. How do you manage their expectations of roles and responsibilities per case, as an example. Yeah. Part of it is you bring them in to learn. So, for example, this morning I had a conference with, with, with the barrister. We've got a mediation coming up in, in May. Uh, we're planning for that. And so there's one of my team is, is helping me with that matter. Uh, we've got another younger lawyer on the team who's sort of doing some of the background legwork on that. So we said, well, let's bring them into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's involve them in that conference. We won't charge the client for their time, but they can then see how this works. Yep. They can then see what we are thinking, how we are planning. They can get an insight. And so that, that's one way of doing it. Um, we also have for people who come into our team, we have the youngest lawyers do rotations. They come into the team for nine months and then they rotate out. And over a two-year period, they'll go into three different groups. So you might be in litigation for nine months real estate for nine months, mm-hmm. government for nine months, or, or any of the other areas. And then at the end of those two years, yep. post-grad, you get to choose which area you'd like to go to. It might be one that you didn't do 
nine months' experience, and it might be a different one. So, but when they come into our group, <coughs> we've set up a bit of a checklist of things we want those people to have done in their nine months, have, have experience in going to court, have experience in being in a mediation, having experience in being in a conference with a client, mm-hmm. have experience in a whole range of things, drafting documents and pleadings and dealing with um, applications so that they get a taste and see as part of that. And then it's a matter when they come full-time into your team, then giving them that opportunity to work on matters. So does that then also lead into um, the metrics around KPIs and, and billables there as well and um, you know how they're attached to team members and practice areas? Yeah, well, everybody has um, billable KPIs. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, most law firms, I think, probably have like a... Anywhere between, well, depends on the firm and the size of the firm, but yeah. I've s- some, some of the larger firms would be six or seven in that range hours a day. Mm-hmm. I've seen some smaller firms with, you know, five, five and a half. Yep. So there's a, there's a billable KPI. Um, if you're measured at our firm, there's billable and non-billable KPIs, and mm-hmm. you get measured across both. So they say, like I say, the pro bono sort of yes. work yep. is a non-billable KPI. Mm-hmm. Everyone has has those targets, and that's now they need to understand those targets. That's fine. They, they get taught them, mm-hmm. um, and then you've got to give people opportunities to meet them. If you, if you have a team and it's not busy, it doesn't matter what your KPI target is, does it? Yeah, that's so, right. Exactly, exactly. And there'll be times and when, and at the moment, I mean, I'm seeing it, like in commerce, there's a cooling down on deals, particularly interstate, mm-hmm. I think. So you might find, if you're in an M&A team in Sydney or Melbourne, you might find that the workload is cooling off a bit. Yep. When it's on, it's on, right? You're working all hours. Exactly. So you might sweat about your KPIs, mm. but then you need to be a place which supports you to realise that there are cycles. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. Um, M&A, whether it's you know, insolvency, they've had a few quiet, quieter years with, with no one being chased. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that is, is why some of the multi-service firm models work too because you know some sectors are, are going really really well and others are a little bit quiet yet the firm as a whole is profitable can still yeah. invest in themselves and you know get the right talent on board for the next cycle i mean it's also I mean, you can have kpis that's fine mm-hmm. but also you need to make sure that the work you're doing when you're meeting those kpis is profitable work you can meet the kpis with unprofitable work yeah that's right there's no point digging that box you know being selective in what work you do can be important as well. You have to do the right work for the right clients, and those clients have to think that you're the right fit for the work they want. Mm-hmm. So it's that two-way interchange. Yeah, I've seen I've seen some people work really, really hard and actually not make a profit. Mm-hmm. Why bother? Yeah. In the professional service areas across different industries, and I'm not just talking legal here, but I'd be interested in your opinion from that legal side is... There's this trade-off at the moment or discussion around, you know, the hourly rate, e.g. your selling time, versus value-based versus product lines. Uh, Historically, accounting firms like ours have been, you know, selling time. uh, And now, you know, there's more of a a concerted effort to make the product, Mm -hmm. to come up with the value pack rather than, you know, X, Y, Z, person, A, B, C equals... Dollars, dollars, dollars. So in, a, in a legal firm, is there that discussion 
at the moment? Has there ever been that discussion? And, and with you know, the advent of technology and other new things coming through, especially young young minds as well, is, is there mm. a move around the value-based? How does a lawyer create a product line so they're not, yeah. you know, they're still learning why they're sleeping, so to speak? I think it depends on the area that you're in. We employ a person to deal with pricing models mm-hmm. in Sydney. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be a pricing specialist mm-hmm. uh, and they will set up um, a different models for alternative fee arrangements okay. so it, it might be that you will have a value based fee or you might have a fixed fee basis or you know whatever it, it's probably easy if you're doing a commercial transaction in litigation uh, it's a lot harder it's not impossible but it's a lot harder because you, you, you actually if you're acting for a defendant, you're very much responding to what the plaintiff does. Mm-hmm. And the cost of litigation is not necessarily bearing a relationship to the amount of money that's involved. Mm-hmm. It's the complexity of the dispute. So I just had a matter, I was dealing for a manufacturer, the dispute's $40,000. Okay. Yeah. Getting the defence done is probably at a cost of if you were to bill all the time that was involved, maybe 15, mm-hmm. because it's complex. I've had matters where we're acting for somebody over the soil in their garden years ago, suing the landscaper. The issues were complex, because you had to go into all the Australian standards and so forth, and you're talking about a garden. Mm-hmm. But um, So time-based charging versus value-based charging can be a bit more difficult there because the value is small. And the time can be large, and that comes back, I think, at the beginning to having the discussion up front, saying, "You've got this piece of litigation. Your cost of actually taking this through to the end is going to be worth three times more than what the dispute's about." And then they'll tell you it's a matter of principle, and you'll tell how much the principle costs. <laughs> <laughs> and and sometimes, you know, you are instructed to to fight that because there either is a precedent issue, and they can't have that precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it might set expectations and behaviours when things get told around the industry that these people are an easy mark. Yep. Yeah, we saw that years ago with workers' compensation and other insurers who would always settle and then everyone thought, well, they can you know, ask what they like because then they can always get a settlement mm-hmm. and then the insurers arced up and said, this is costing too much and they said, no, we won't settle things easily. Yeah. And so that changes. But those people also, when I say they used to have sort of fixed fees for different stages of litigation... Mm-hmm. Um, and then that changed. So uh, horses for courses, I think, is the answer. Yeah. And I suppose, too, from a professional services firm, it, it impacts us all, but how do you manage scope creep? I think you've got to know what the scope is to start with and you've got to agree on the scope. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people come in and it, it looks like something at the beginning, but then as you get into it, it turns out to be something very different. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you've got to sort of be smart enough to take a pause, tell the client that it is different, the budget will be different, the scope is different, or be willing to write off some time mm-hmm. Yep. if you don't. And there are some clients, it matters, other clients, it doesn't. Mm. Um, but it, I think it has to be important. As a lawyer in particular, with our professional obligations for, for client agreements, where you do identify the scope, yeah. uh, if that's different, you have to amend your client agreement to deal with the new scope and then give a new estimate. So I might have a matter and the client comes to me for advice and I'll put in that one of the assumptions is that it doesn't involve litigation. It's strategic advice. Mm -hmm. If it does then turn into litigation, I have to give them a new 
client agreement with a new scope and a new new cost agreement. Yep. But or you might have litigation. You say this is the scope, and the client says I want you to do A, B, C, D, and E. And as part of doing those, you end up also adding on some extra work because you think it'll be important for some applications coming up. But if you haven't had the discussion with them about it, yep. Um, you know they don't want a surprise. Yeah. And the no surprises rule is really important. Yep. Yeah. So scope is important, but also we have reporting tools as well. So scope aside, um, there are clients who want you to report when you get to like 60, 70, 80% of the estimate. Mm-hmm. And so we have reporting tools which automatically will fire off a report to you to say you're at 60%, you know, your work in progress is 60% of your estimate for this stage. Yep. And you can use phase codes to enter time against different stages so that they can be separated out. Yeah. Um, those tools help. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose another interesting uh, across all professional services firm is is the point around leverage, and, and mm. I'm not talking debt. I'm talking um, team members here, mm-hmm. and you know different firms, different industries. Like you know, for example, I think accounting firms. You look to one to seven, one to eight, and historically, it's probably been as high as one to ten talking to a few other lawyers around the place, they've seen that narrow in the legal profession. So how do you, in your team or your firm as a, as a policy, manage leverage? Well, I think, I think leverage is important. It's also hard. Mm-hmm. Unless you have highly transactional matters uh, where you can employ people to do the same job repeatedly, um, you're not going to have the same high leverage like you would in an accounting firm. So if you had lots of insurance claims... Mm-hmm which is the same all the time, or lots of property instructions coming through the same all the time, you could probably have a team of people to meet that and it's, you know, there's a bit more automation involved and you can have higher one to seven, eight, nine, whatever. Yep. But if you've got individual complex transactions, your team is not going to be that big on that matter unless it's a massive piece of litigation. Mm-hmm. Your team might be two or three. Yep. You know? If you have four people working for you or five, you've got to keep them fed and you have them fed on different matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, A, that's a, partly a consequence of how much work you've got coming through and how many mouths you can feed. Mm-hmm. But on a particular matter, um, I, I, what I tend to see is like an f- area like mine, mm-hmm. um, people don't come to me for the easy matters. They come to me for the hard matters, the mm-hmm. complex matters, and they're wanting partner involvement. Yep. And so if you've got partner involvement, you're not having as much leverage, and that might not then fit into the leverage model as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it may be more profitable if you have more leverage involved than simply partner level. Mm-hmm. And if you've got partners being too occupied on matters, then that can have a flow-on effect where they're not busy doing business development, yes. yeah. mentoring, supervising. That's why they work so late, because they're so busy on the tools. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's the... That's that, that's that's the challenge because when you're a firm like ours, where you get the more difficult, more complex matters that require senior skills, uh, it might not be a large matter where you'll get lots of juniors involved. Mm-hmm. If yep. it is a large matter, that's great, but it's not always the case. So again, you have to talk to the client about what their needs are, mm-hmm. what their wants are. Some clients don't want to deal with a wrath of juniors. Yeah, they just want the partner involved. And have you seen that change? Of late, where there is this requirement for for a partner or, or the senior associate, the the manager level style, where they say, "I'm paying for this advice. It's what I want. I, you know, I can 
outsource all the other little bits and pieces mm-hmm. and, and I want you guys mm-hmm. to, to oversee the whole lot. We've seen some of that in, in our industry over the last little while and, and that's you know due to technology advancements. Do you see any of that? Have you seen that trend line within the legal profession? Yeah, I think you see it with people sometimes and you've got sophisticated purchases of legal services as well mm-hmm. where they will know that there are certain things where they can send it to, I'll call it level B, but if they want the A team, it'll be something different um, and they will know what they want from that. They'll know who they want. They're normally buying from a person, not a firm. Yeah. If, if I can call it buying, you know, use the term buying. Yeah. But they know who they want. They want that person's skill. And they want that person's thumbprint mm-hmm. all over it. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that's the case. Yeah. So then how does that, how do you then manage the Ian Blumendale brand versus the Clayton Utes brand in the marketplace? Um, that's good. Good question. I mean, you there's there's always a Clayton Newts brand in the background, right? So that's it's a bit like sort of having Coca Cola, in, in a sense. But um, yeah. people have they'll know that is that brand stands for a certain level of quality and a certain level of service. So, so I call it blue chip law, if you like. Yeah. But they'll still go to the individuals in different practice areas. So I have a client who may come to see Ian Blumendale for litigation, but they've got a different. They might have a different commercial lawyer at another firm. Mm-hmm. Try and introduce them to our commercial lawyers and tell them <laughs> that they're missing out. Absolutely. Because <laughs> we've, we've got fantastic you know, commercial yeah. law partners, yeah, yeah, yeah. ACE partners, and they might not have had an experience to not try and refer them and, 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 and see if they can, um, can help them. Mm-hmm. Yep. But they're sophisticated and they know who they want for different, different things. Yep. Yeah. And so you need to, again, I talk about spice of excellence. You need, it's how do you get known for that? Yep. I mean, I'll speak at conferences, I'll write articles, I'll put any article stuff on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. you know, publish that. I think I'm speaking at a defamation conference next month. On the, as part of the Law Council, we put together a federal litigation conference in Melbourne a couple of months ago, so, mm-hmm. you know, I was at that. You just have to be out there. Yeah. And people have to know you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I suppose, like you said, with, with the background branding of, of Clayton, it attracts the young lawyers and the talent. Mm-hmm. to come through which then assists you where in some instances though the person's coming for Ian Blumendale so you live off each other I suppose is probably a good assumption yeah, that's right well, the partner who employed me told me you should always employ people who are smarter than you oh for sure absolutely I think that's right yeah I really appreciate you coming on to the, the series today to, to discuss this. I think there's been some really key insights, um, you know, about your career and obviously what you've experienced, but then also um, for other professional services providers, um, you know, a lot more about, uh, you know, what they can do and um, how to structure, I guess, different elements with regards to their people and, and business and, and practice groups as well. So, yeah, thank you very much for, for sharing that insight and, and your career journey. It's been, been terrific to hear. You're welcome, Chris. Ian. Thank you, Ian. Cheers. In terms of um, individuals, if they need to reach out to to speak to you, how how do they best go about doing that? I think uh, I'm easily findable (laughs) on the Clayton News website or or LinkedIn, uh, uh, either way. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time today. You're welcome, Chris. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support and assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallon Redshaw. Led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic and Valda Glynn, 
Our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice, supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout Southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website, www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 07 3002 2699.